0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at ewtn.com.
1: A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. As the man said, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Uh, The overwhelming majority of the staff here at EWTN, one of the great pleasures of working here, is the opportunity for uh, a retreat at the beginning of both the Lenten and Advent seasons. And so we are uh, kind of recharging our batteries entering into the first part of Lent, and so a lot of us are at the retreat uh, today. And so we've uh, put this together for you a couple days ahead of time so that you'll have some fresh programming um, to enjoy on this particular day. So we won't be taking your calls today, but as he said, if you'd like to be part of a future Mailbag Edition, just send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host is he is every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are
2: you? Uh, Doing good.
1: What do you think you're doing right now?
2: What I'm doing right now? Sitting in the studio. No, no, no. What
1: do you think you're doing right now as this airs?
2: uh, As this airs? we would be uh, in our last talk of our retreat of the yeah. afternoon before heading back up to, uh, to With Birmingham. With Dr. David Andrews says our He, uh, retreat, he is Pastor. doing it this year. That's correct. Yeah.
1: Well, we got an email here from Paul in Madison, Wisconsin, and he says, Is it proper to place a statue of Mary on the altar for a rosary prayer service?
2: It, it's not normally uh, done, but I've seen it done by exception. Um, certainly not in the context of a mass but in other circumstances uh, this you know, typically what there is is, as the friars do here, uh, a little stand or something off to the side of the altar. And that would be uh, normally where you would put a statue that's there, there, perhaps, say, for a particular feast day, Our Lady of Fatima or something like that. And similarly, this could be done on a saint's feast day if you had a, a statue of a particular uh, particular saint. So that would be the normal practice, although I've seen the other done as well.
1: Eight. Well, there I go. Boy, I got, it, it didn't take a minute and a half for me to try to give you the phone number but we're not using the phones today it's a special mailbag edition well, of open the friday well every time
2: you see this cross on my forehead
1: well see now you've now have, you've given you've given away too much now they know when we're recording it they know there's 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 well there's, on youtube
2: they already know that
1: there's mis- no there is no youtube there's there's oh, you're not you, you've me. blown oh, my everything goodness. out of the water colin there well. is Part of the beauty of radio is the <laughs> intrigue, and, and you're just...
2: Well, snip, snip. That's all I can say. We have gracious, a I hope of you're
1: going to confession. It. That's what I hope you're doing at the retreat Uh-oh. right now. Uh, Tim writes in, My sister's <laughs> daughter's spouse is Muslim, so her two grandsons were baptized in the Islamic faith. Is it a sin or even a valid baptism if we were to secretly arrange a Catholic baptism for the two boys ages four and one? Will the boys go to hell or purgatory with this baptism in Muslim faith on their soul?
2: Well, as far as I know, there is maybe there is such thing as a Islamic baptism. Remember, the the Jewish people for converts had a a form of baptismal ceremony uh, uh, that had to be uh, gone through. Uh, This is something similar to what John the Baptist was doing in calling people to repentance and baptizing them, a baptism of conversion. So there may be something that may be historically a Middle Eastern, uh, ancient Middle Eastern uh, practice. In any case, there is not baptism in the Christian sense because salvation is in Christ. And although they consider Jesus a great prophet, they do not consider him the Savior who reconciles them with God the Father. Because they consider the identity idea of a Trinity as an abomination, so uh, they don't have any of the theology that would even suggest on their from their side of the question uh, that it would accomplish what we believe Christian baptism. But no, as far as what you may do, it is nothing. God has in His providence placed them in the care of those parents. Uh, One should you can pray, certainly, and do penance for the conversion of the parents such that they themselves would be baptized. And if not, uh, it sounded like one of the parties was a a Christian beforehand and one was a Muslim. But that you cannot intervene and baptize the children. And there are a lot of reasons, pastorally and theologically because you cannot provide for those children you cannot provide for their upbringing for their uh, growth in, in Christian life uh, for introduction to the sacrament of confession and the Holy Eucharist and confirmation and so on So not being able to do that you should not be uh, you know just willy-nilly baptizing them or anybody uh, in uh, in into the faith without the permission of those who have, responsibility before God for them in this case the parents
1: Uh, again a special mailbag edition of open line Friday so we're not taking your phone calls today Ryan writes in how can I argue well for the authority of the Catholic Church to a person who finds sacred tradition to be unbelievable and circular reasoning
2: well first of all by explaining to them that they if they are a Christian they are part of a tradition because a tradition is simply the things handed on. Every Christian denomination, unless it lasts one generation and is founded by one pastor and dies with that pastor, has a tradition, because subsequent generations will receive things from the previous generations, receive an understanding of how Scripture is interpreted, receiving certain practices and how they are conducted. And so you can't say you, the idea of a tradition uh is uh, is circular logic. Uh certainly St Paul didn't when he said that he expected those to follow what he had taught them in person or by by writing them. And the things that he had handed on and there we have the at least in Latin you would have the traditio the, the things handed on uh being represented Now, here is what distinguishes, say, Catholic tradition from Lutheran tradition or Episcopal tradition or others, and that is the Catholic tradition is 2,000 years old. What becomes sacred tradition, and that is what becomes interpretive of sacred scripture, is very narrowly defined to those things which can find, be found roots in the teaching of the apostles, and that is uh, the, the testament to that is the fact that they have, uh, they are taught always and everywhere in the first century in some form, even if only in seed. In other words, the teachings of Our Lady are not inventions of subsequent centuries, but something that in the early church were already found among the teachers of the first century, the second, the third, the fourth. By a contemplation of those teachings, the church has deepened it and has contributed to a deeper understanding of that sacred tradition. Another name for which you can call it is an apostolic tradition. If it's not an apostolic tradition with its roots in the teaching of the apostles and the practices they taught, then it's not a, um, it's not a, a sacred tradition, it's an ecclesiastical tradition. And the church can have practices which she changes as the celebration of the mass, the, the manner of it, the rites and ceremonies were changed uh, at the Second Vatican Council. As the different rites of the church in different parts of the world, world the Melkites, the Maronites, the Byzantines, the Romans all have their own liturgical rites, which are the same faith, the same sacrament, but expressed in different way according to the tradition of that particular church. So those are not apostolic traditions, although the essential elements of the liturgy and the sacraments are, go, go back to the apostles. And you wonder how we can make such a claim, perhaps, and why it's not circular logic. It would be this, and that is, there is no time in the church, for example, that baptism of infants has not been practiced. It's alluded to in the, in the Acts of the Apostles when whole households were baptized, but it was never explicitly stated. But the inference is there. But the fact that there has never been any question that the baptism of infants was appropriate as the circumcision of boys in Israel was to bring them into the people of God. Baptism does the same thing for the redeemed people of God. So there is something which is an apostolic tradition which is not explicitly mentioned in sacred scripture. So there are many things like that which the universal practice and ancient practice of the church demonstrate that it derives from the apostles and was not invented at a particular place in time, and therefore it constitutes a tradition handed on from the apostles. Other things may be ecclesiastical traditions, which the church has has created to serve a purpose, uh, and that re- remain uh, to our day even after you know, a millennium or a millennium and a half or so. Other things may be pious traditions that are are created to express the faith of a particular people uh, in a particular culture. All of those things are important, but the tradition that counts is the sacred tradition that can be traced to the apostles. And there is no surgical or logic there. There is a seeking of the truth as expressed from the beginning in the church and everywhere in the church then and since.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: By providing quality programming faithful to the teachings of the Catholic Church, EWTN Television is TV that viewers can trust. Whether it's films, documentaries, news coverage, lively discussion shows, or even kids' programs, we highlight the truth that is the eternal word. For a complete schedule of EWTN television programs, visit EWTN.com and click on tv again it's a very special mailbag edition of ewtn's open line friday so we won't be taking your phone calls today our next email comes from dustin and he wants to know if there are different levels in heaven
2: well there is in this sense our heaven that we receive will be in proportion to the charity that we exp- that we die with in other words our union with god that's what charity is that which unites our will to his and so there are obviously personal grades for everybody who has ever lived is, has you know dies in a different degree of this and so it's that communio that communion with god in love which is sort of the vessel if you will if you compare you know, a, thim- a thimble's worth of eternal joy with an ocean's worth of eternal joy, or something like that. There are, whoever possesses that beatitude is completely filmed, filled and satisfied by it. But each profess or receives that d- degree and depth of beatitude based on their union with God when they die. In other words, uh, that degree of charity in which we die so in that sense there are levels but there is no segregation if you will of those levels you know whether it's our lord or our lady or the angels any of the saints or anyone uh, anyone who among the just who is with god for eternity uh, there is no distinction of persons in any other sense than their degree of charity and of course, supreme among those is Our Lady, whose, uh, whose holiness exceeds all others, and some have said even uh, all others put together, as the one most deserving by, by virtue of her, her yes to the archangel and her participation in the incarnation and the redemption uh, at every one of its stages.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. If you would like to be part of a future mailbag program, simply call that number after... Well, I need to rethink this now. After the launch of Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers, we have now pushed that back to after... 5 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, Monday through Friday or on the weekends. Call that number, and you can leave your question for one of our open line hosts. Uh, Cody writes in, if God is all-merciful and forgiving and loving, why does he send anyone to hell? Why doesn't he just put them to sleep?
2: (laughs) That's that's a good one. Uh, (laughs) It's sort of like uh, divine capital punishment, I suppose you might say in a way. Or divine euthanasia. Or divine euthanasia. You know, this is the theory of at least one non-Catholic Christian group that everybody just sort of, yeah, that's the end of it, you know, and only the 144,000 actually enjoy heaven. Uh, No, it's because what is good in every creature that God made is the being that God gave that creature. And even the angels, although they are in hell, possess that being. And God can never destroy it. Sadly, in a way, it would, be, it would have been sort of an experiment if God had to wait for existence to work out in each individual before de- determining whether they would be worthy of heaven or hell. He already knows that when he created every one of us. And he knows it, because but he also knows he's given us freedom. And so he may, allows us to make that determination. It's quite typical now in, in among theologians and others who speak casually or otherwise about, uh, about this is that we send ourselves to hell in a very real sense by the choices we make, by the choice we make not to spend eternity with God if we've not spent any time on earth seeking God, we're unlikely to want to spend any time with him for the rest of eternity either. Uh, And that sadly would be the moral state of many people who die and go to hell is, you know, they didn't give a darn about what in life about God or his commandments or their neighbor or anybody else, and so they're unsurprisingly not gonna be living in community with all the people who did. So it's the fruit of our own efforts. And even to the extent that we cooperate with grace, God gives us the merits of that cooperation so that we go to heaven in that sense on our own on, by our merits, but not without his grace. And in the other sense, we go to hell on our own merits, but absent his grace because we just would have none of it.
1: Uh, Once again, it's a special mailbag edition of Open Line Friday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. We're emptying out the mailbag. Anderson writes in, is it a doctrine of the Church that Mary is co-redemptrix? Do you think it should be?
2: Uh, The answer is no and yes. (laughs) (laughs) It is a teaching of the Church, however, and uh, quite well established, uh, in different ways by, uh, by common usage, such as in the liturgy. Uh, we had a, a, a good talk uh, <coughs> at, the, uh, at the Mariological Society of Ameri- America in which it was shown from the Marian Missal, which has uh, uh, masses dedicated to Our Lady, many of them which have prayers of, of quite ancient origin, uh, in which if the words are not used, and they were not, Nonetheless, the doctrine that Mary's cooperation with Christ was so full and complete uh, that it participated in that respect uh, in all in all ways in the uh, in the redemption. And so, in that sense, we could say she was a the greatest cooperator. She was the co-pilot of the incarnation and the redemption. And in that sense, that she enjoys the merit of that cooperation. Uh, I think a simple way to think of that humanly, I mean, we talked about pilot and co-pilot. That's an analogy that's often used. But let's say that if two people were to do some work uh, together, but one was the principal person and even the most significant one, upon whose fame and merits the success of the enterprise depended. They would nonetheless probably share the credit with the one who accompanied them. Great men will often share that with their spouses or great women with theirs, uh, their husbands. Uh, and so even even men on and women will, will give the credit to their parents, realizing that without their parents and the helps and the and the things that they have done to uh, accompany them and prepare them for life. They could not have accomplished what they did accomplish. This is just an element of human justice to see where it is owed gratitude for things that were done. And so it would be very unseemly and very ungodlike if Jesus didn't show the gratitude to his mother for saying yes to the Incarnation, participating and saying yes consistently throughout her life, to foster his growth through the stages of natural human life, to adulthood where he can undertake his public ministry and complete his public ministry in which he accompanied him to the foot of the cross. So it would be very unseemly and very ungodlike to Jesus to just say, well, thank you, Mom, but uh, sayonara. No, he is grateful, and we ought to be grateful for her participation and cooperation. So, no, this is not yet declared as a dogma, but doctrinally it's quite well established, and I think the day will come when it will also be declared dogmatically as such uh, by some future pope.
1: Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, not taking any phone calls today. Jackie wants to know, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, would they have experienced death?
2: The answer to that is the general opinion of theologians is they would not have, that they would have had a probation as the devils did, a rather brief one, uh, actually, uh, because their first act was a bad act, those that that, uh, did not stand with God. And so they would have had that period of probation, and at the end of which, they would have passed to eternal life. The analogy, of course, in the Catholic teaching is Mary's passage to eternal life. The Church doesn't say that she didn't die, but rather that the general belief is yet she, she died, but yet she was not allowed to corrupt, and so she was her body was taken, or she was taken body and soul uh, to, to heaven. So how exactly that would have worked out with Adam and Eve but if we think about it, what is uh, Saint Paul teaches that with uh, with Adam's sin, death came into the world. Without Adam's sin, there was no death. So probation over, our Lord would have welcomed them into eternal life through some process, perhaps of falling asleep, and and being, uh, perhaps even resurrected uh, immediately. For eternal life. But these are details we do not know and represent uh, the kind of speculations uh, theologians do, uh, but uh, for which the Church has not said uh, yea or nay on uh, as of yet.
1: Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Bryant asks, "What what is the Catholic teaching about the Sabbath? What was the Sabbath?
2: Well, the Sabbath for the Jews, we know quite clearly from Scripture, was a commemoration of the Lord's rest. It was a commemoration of his uh, creative act. He created the world, and he rested from that act. And we understand that to mean that all things, material and spiritual, were created. The Council of the Lateran in the 1200s defined this. Uh, were simultaneously created, not that all creatures, everyone individually or whatever, but that all matter and all energy uh, in the Istinian sense of that. Everything material was created and everything spiritual, meaning the angels, the spiritual beings were also created. Those, they have no matter, of course, they are immaterial. The only thing that ever gets created in history since that creation is uh, the individual soul when it's infused into the matter of the body at the moment of conception. That's the only from everything else God has rested. So that that, that is what is meant by, by that. And what we shall see, of course, is that um, uh, the, ch- the church takes that quite seriously and therefore gives the credit of of the gift of law uh, of soul at the moment of conception today uh... and that's the strong religious theological defense of, uh, of the church's position on life uh... the scientific defense ought to be sufficient for everybody else because from that it is quite clear that materially that that is all we are it begins at our conception as
1: well. it's EWTN's open line friday with colin donovan
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: That's right. It's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Brand new program from our good buddy, Colin Donovan, our very own vice president of theology. and distinguished member of the Marian Pontifical Academy, I might add. Uh, Noah writes in, in Luke's Gospel, why does Jesus, in a parable, praise the steward's dishonesty in paying off his master's debtors?
2: He, he takes that attitude in a couple places in Scripture where he wants to point out that there's a kind of wisdom in that. It's a very egotistical, you know, self-interested wisdom. But it's very clever you know when he says be wise as serpents, serpents but clever clever as uh, or gentle as doves there is a cleverness on the spiritual level and on the natural level which is not of god and so the same facility in us our intellects our reason can be turned to good as well and that's what he is of course uh, encouraging us to do, that if the uh, if the clever steward can provide for his future in a worldly sense uh, and do so in a very unique fashion, ought we not to be as clever in our provision for our eternities? And that's the basic message of, of some of those passages where it seems to be suggesting he is approving of bad behavior when in reality he is just calling us to imitate the wisdom but a good moral wisdom and not the bad human clever wisdom uh, of those who, who have done evil.
1: Again, it's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. We're emptying out the mailbag. Part of that is Virginia's letter. In a conditional baptism, what is the phrase "if thou art a man" used? Why is the phrase "if thou art a man" is used? I don't. Read it, I have never
2: heard that. Neither have I. No, no. I think the the expression she may be trying to grab onto is, uh, "if you if you are not if you are not baptized, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit." In the case of those who may have baptism at the moment of death when it's equivocal whether they're actually uh, the soul is still there because we don't the church doesn't specify how long the soul remains because there can be clinical biological death but that doesn't mean that the soul necessarily has you know poof and departed Uh, and that could explain the the occasions when people seem to be resuscitated you know, under very unusual circumstances and they obviously declared dead or kept perhaps, you know, under frigid conditions to keep them hypothermic so that their body doesn't corrupt while uh, some procedure or process is being prepared. And then they're resuscitated. So the church doesn't make that claim uh, that there is instance in, in, um An instantaneous departure of the soul. So what happens is sometimes if the priest arrives, the person seems to have died, they're still warm, they can be anointed, perhaps they'd requested baptism, he didn't get there time when they were alert or even clinically alive. If it seems reasonable to him that the soul would still be there, and warmth is often taken as the primary evidence of this, Then what he would say, you know, if you are present, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or words, or like that. Uh, I've never heard this expression, if you are a man. um, Perhaps some other Christian body uses that, but I've not heard that.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Um. Next up, Jenny, she wants to know, what is the evidence for the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary?
2: There is no evidence any more than there is evidence in any real sense for the resurrection. Uh, We have the testimony of the Gospels. We have the testimony of of believers down through the ages. Uh, We don't even have that in the case of Our Lady, but we have a number of surprising facts, and that is that there is no counter-evidence in the Christian tradition. Uh, there is no place where, at a time when to have the relics of the martyrs and the holy people was a great honor, and Christian communities, you know, wanted to have, you know, that, uh, you know, a chapel to this martyr or that person, there is nobody who claims that well we have the we have the body of Mary. So universally, from the first centuries, there is an absence of evidence in that kind of a sense in which you could say, well, this martyr died, was put to death under the Romans, and his tomb is at such and such a place. With Christ, we have the testimony of the Gospels. You could say in our modern times, we can use the shroud as an example. That doesn't prove all people, but it's a very good example of Of something which is very, very suggestive of the resurrection, but it doesn't prove it. Ultimately, you believe on authority. You know, one of the things for which Christ was praised and was said of him is that he speaks with authority, unlike our scribes and Pharisees. There is a certain authority in the witness that our Lord gave, and the church has that authority and makes that witness and is always... Uh, believed um, with time going on there have been uh, of course more doctrinal kinds of explanations of that but in the early church for example the fathers spoke of Mary as the new Eve, Christ as the new Adam. To say to show that how if god was restoring the uh restoring mankind he wouldn't re- just restore man he would restore woman as well because this is the complement which makes up the whole of mankind and that mary is in that role as even is suggested in in genesis chapter 3 you know that the 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 seed of the woman will crush the seed it will crush satan's head and so those those suggestions in Scripture of Mary's cooperation at every level, uh, in in conquering the devil, would suggest that she would receive as much honor as Eve would have received if she had not sinned. And we spoke of that earlier in the show. What what became of her body? How would how would if she had not sinned? If Adam and Eve had not sinned, would how would they have gone to heaven? Would they have? You know, how would that have taken place? Well, Mary did receive what Adam and Eve would have received if they uh, if they had been faithful, and that is she received upon death the glory that God had intended for Adam and Eve, just as Christ did, received on death, uh, after death in his resurrection, the glory uh, that was to have been Adam's. And so we find those parallels, and it just you know, developed somewhat naturally in the church to see Mary's role in an ever more complete fashion, uh, to see this witness to in Scripture, even though not explicitly spoken of. Um, But in the terms of evidence, I think you'd have to go largely with the fact nobody claims her body. The places that claim her tomb do so on the basis of her having been assumed have after having been buried, as our Lord was, and ascended, and uh, rose, and then ascended on His own, but in her case, taken body and soul to heaven. And so that's a negative, a negative evidence. But I think it's the witness of the Church, the authority of the Church, which speaks not as the scribes and Pharisees, but speaks in, out of its testimony for the completeness and fullness of God's plan. Worked out for man and woman through Christ and Our Lady.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Um, Rich writes in What are your thoughts on when Jesus would have become aware that he is the Son of God the Father?
2: Of an instant after Mary said yes to the angel. Because, humanly speaking, he existed. He didn't have a brain. He didn't have a nervous system. He had an intellect and a will, as we all do at our conceptions, because body and soul is the constituency of man. And so he had those. And so his soul was instantly illumined with the knowledge of who he was. It would be unthinkable that, that he who is God doesn't know that he is now also a human conceptus in his mother, and an embryo, and a, an a infant in the womb, fetus, and then a child born. Now, he, he followed the normal stages of life in expressing those in exterior way through the use of the fac, material faculties that human beings have, but intellectually from the very beginning, he knew who he was and he knew what his mission was. And... The general conclusion of the great doctors of the church and theologians is that those gifts which we can attribute to any of the saints or Our Lady uh, in terms of mystical knowledge and so on, Christ had in fullness and completeness from the moment of his inter- uh, of his incarnation. So he had no way of expressing them, but he had that fullness, which uh, we acquire over, over the course of life. And if we seek God in prayer, we will, we will acquire even more by the gifts that he would give us in prayer. Christ had everything uh, in that instant of his uh, incarnation.
1: Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. Not taking your phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a future uh, mailbag edition, feel free to send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Tyler says, a priest recently told me that there was no ark or flood and that it was all a story. Is that true?
2: Well, it's certainly a story. I think a lot of uh, water over the dam, so to speak, has occurred to try to you know, find the ark and to, uh, to, dem- to you know, demonstrate that. Um, non-Catholic Christians uh, have a great interest in that, uh, archaeologically and otherwise. I think we, we can make all kinds of assumptions that uh, what that means, but historically identifying which event that it refers to, that's the more difficult part. I think the Scripture is telling us a truth about uh God and His uh, the the punishment of mankind for its sinfulness, but it's not quite clear how that worked out in history. It's clearly not six thousand years ago. Uh, a great great deal of effort has been made to demonstrate that a, a lot of the features on the surface of the Earth have been uh, created within that six thousand years, as if you know uh, that's how long the Earth has been in existence. I think. The truth that God inputs into creation is every bit as true as the truth that is dis- uh, revealed in Revelation. The difficulty comes to reconciling the two. And there is no doubt a way to reconcile historically what the, what the facts and what the, the, uh, the teaching of, of Noah's Ark was with, with history. We just may not know what the, how, to, how that's done yet. But I think claiming that we know, as some do, I think is, uh, is a difficult thing to do because it's, it's disproven by the facts of, of uh, science and archaeology and so on as it's discovered. The Church is more inclined to wait on those things as areas where truth can be known, uh, at least of historical senses, And to wait and to see and then to try to do the reconciliation rather than to jump to the meaning of history and so on uh, directly from the forms in which they are taken given to us in the sacred scripture
1: again a special mailbag edition of open line friday with our very own vice president of theology colin donovan be sure to keep it here um, right after our program on many of these ewtn radio stations Um, You'll hear Beacon of Truth with Deacon Harold Berg-Sivers, find out exactly why he is known as the Dynamic Deacon. Today he talks about the Christian checkbox. Uh, What are the things that we should be checking off and are you checking them off just to check them off? Uh, Deacon Harold's got an opinion on that and about everything else uh, and you will hear it in a very dynamic fashion on Beacon of Truth right here at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. Jeffrey wants to know, what is the unpardonable sin mentioned in Scripture, and why is it unpardonable?
2: Well, the unpardonable sin is final impenitence, and it's unpardonable because if it's impenitence and it's the final act of impenitence, how are you going to get pardoned? You have to have a disposition to be pardoned. You have to be of disposition to say to God, I have offended you heal me of my offense pardon me of my sin so that that is what it is and it's a sin against the holy spirit because what is the holy spirit but the means by which through history Christ works to extend his ministry during his life on earth his ministry of redemption to do it through the church to do it through the sacraments <coughs> And so the person who, at their end of life, uh, usually with one of two dispositions, and these are sins against the virtue of hope, primarily, one of the dispositions would be presumption. Well, I don't know if there's a God or there isn't a God, but I just know that I'm just a great person, and if I've offended him, I can't possibly not be forgiven and not admitted to whatever, you know, whatever eternal happiness he has prepared. The idea that I don't have anything to to for, to ask forgiveness for, that maybe I'm just so good I couldn't possibly be pardoned or be, possibly need pardoning, simply taken as myself. God should want me, and if not, then I don't want God. At the other end of the scale is despair, which is another egotistical act as well, because it says, my sins are so great, I can't be forgiven. You know, it might be called the hand-wringer sin, that, oh, woe is me, I can't get, oh, I can't be forgiven, my sins are so great, Uh, I'm an evil person. There's a lack of confidence, a lack of hope there, um, a lack of faith in God. And ultimately, that uh, elevates self up. The importance of self. Both of those elevate the importance of self. I'm so good that I can't possibly have ever done anything wrong that would keep me out of heaven, even though I know these Ten Commandments things. But what do those matter, considering who I am? Or at the other end, oh, I'm so such a sinner. How can God possibly forgive? I know what Jesus did on the cross, but oh, I know there's no way he could forgive me. Both of these elevate oneself up to the top of the pyramid and uh that's a long way to fall down and that's where you, what happens you fall down because you're not willing to admit in all oh. simplicity that you are the creature dependent upon god and he is god but he loves you and he's prepared to accept you even in that moment regardless of what you've done you need only ask
1: It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Friday. If you've got a uh, question for Colin Donovan that would you like to maybe have part of a future mailbag uh, show, send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. Dave wants to know, what exactly is papal infallibility?
2: Papal infallibility is when the church needs the pope to be infallible, he is and that means that he has to decide some question or some element of a question that is a matter of dispute so we look at what the lord said to uh, peter after the resurrection he said when you have or before when you have turned this is when peter failed him when you have turned to to confirm the brethren in the faith in other words When you have repented of your abandonment of me on the cross and you are strengthened again, confirm the brothers in the faith. And the brothers are the other apostles. And so it's the job of Peter and his successor to, in all times and and situations, where there is a need to confirm the brethren in the faith to do so and the church in speaking of infallibility at the first vatican council uh, speaks very specifically about the conditions under which this is done where he is deciding uh, some matter when he is asserting it as a final decision based on his apostolic authority uh, and with some solemnity and by doing this he is clearly deciding to put an end to some discussion and debate on the matter. That would be the extraordinary exercise of infallibility. There can be an ordinary exercise of it as well, uh, and not all things are done in very solemn fashions. And so uh, the general run of theologians would say that the decision of Paul VI on contraception was uh, an, uh, an exercise of papal infallibility, John Paul II on, on, on women and Orders that there could be no uh, ordinations of women; that that was an exercise of it. His decisions on on life in Evangelium Vitae that uh, sins against the fifth commandment are 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 grave grave evils, and that includes abortion and euthanasia. That these that these uh, were exercises of papal infallibility, and. I think the most common example that we don't often think of but which theologians have often asserted is an exercise of papal fallibility is his canonizations because when you hear what the Pope actually says sometime listening on EWTN or watching uh, uh, canonization listen to the formula of canonization where he says by the authority of the apostles Peter and Paul and by my own I declare and command that so-and-so is to be honored and venerated in the church as a saint. It's more elaborate than that. That's my paraphrase of it. But it's a very solemn way in which the generally understood to be an exercise of papal infallibility because the elements of affirming a decision uh, which uses apostolic authority— the authority of the apostles, Peter and Paul, and my own. These are all ways of expressing the will of the Pope to decide with finality, you know, uh, it is done.
1: And I should have asked you this question first, and we may not have needed any other questions for the program. (laughs) Paul wants to know, where did God the Father come from?
2: Uh, Eternity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, uh, a lot of people have pondered that, but... uh, coming from and going to is a purely temporal concept. Uh, Even old Aristotle had this one figured out when he said time is a measure of change. There is no change in God. There is no time. Uh, And so uh, even on the natural level, the pagan Greeks uh, understood that. And so they postulated also an, an uh, an infinite active power Uh, supreme above all things and a first cause of all things that precisely fit those uh, those characteristics of out of time out of space and unchanging and that's that's God
1: Um, okay Mr. Mariologist Alana wants to know Uh does Mary have to die to be resurrected on the last day if she was assumed into heaven
2: no she's in heaven she doesn't have to do anything Uh, But at the end of the world, those of us who are still here, and there's no supposition on my part that I'll be here at the end of the world, I think we're, you know, we're a long ways from that, at least sometime. I think
1: you can make a good case that we're in the latter days but not the last days
2: right yeah i think we're not in the final turmoil if you're applying matthew uh 25 that we're uh we're in that historical period which is always of that character but gets more serious the closer you get to the end but in any case uh in in the case of our lady and all the saints and uh the saints will receive their bodies back our lady has hers um, and the rest of us, when our Lord returns, will be the resurrection, and our body. We will be reunited to our bodies, uh, and God will be all in all, as Saint Paul tells us so beautifully in First Corinthians fifteen.
1: And finally, today, Leo wants to know where in the Old Testament do we get the concept of hell?
2: Um. Well, that's a good one. Certainly, is among the Jews. I'm not exactly, uh, I can't give you a biblical quote of that. But I think the, the nature of justice is expressed in, uh, in the Old Testament, su- certainly suggests it. Uh, I think the concept of uh, a place of torment like that seems implicit uh, in much of Scripture. Uh, but I, I can't off the top of my head give a, a citation there.
1: But there certainly is references to places like Gehenna and things like that that would kind of... Right.
2: And so for the Jews that became uh, used the example of their garbage dump, which was always on fire, gave them the imagery of what uh, what torment was like and which we see in the Gospel of Luke with uh, Lazarus and the rich man.
1: Well, we thank you for tuning in to this very special Mailbag Edition of Open Line Friday. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we will be back at it again on Monday with another edition of EWTN's Open Line. Until then, God bless.